Good morning, everyone. Like Torn said, my name is Dave. I get to be one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to be able to share uh, the message with you this morning. Um, during community time, you got to say hi, physically distance, and then share a story about your first or worst job. And I'd like to share with you just a little bit about myself. So my first job was at Red Robin Gourmet Burgers and Spirits, home of the bottomless fries. <clears throat> and I got to just take a moment to brag a little bit because my first month working there, I was employee of the month. Let it, that sink in. How does that happen? You buy in completely to the vision of bonsai burgers and freckled lemonades. And I memorized every birthday song that you went to the table my first week. And they're like, man, this guy's just unreal. And that was my first job. And we often reminisce or watch shows about difficult jobs or when you first started. Uh, but if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our cultural context as Americans, our jobs, our wealth, our vocation, our careers are a significant part of who we are. It's, it's what we put the highest priority on. And at every stage of life, we ask these questions as we work, very important to our, our identity. We ask ourselves, who am I? And what is my purpose? And so often in our culture, we answer that question based on our work. So who am I? And internally we think, I am what I do, what I produce, what I make. And this can lead to uh, priorities that are out of line. Uh, it can lead to stress and burnout, all sorts of things. And uh, I like what David Zoll says. I'm going to put his quote up here. He's a very brilliant writer and sort of critiques culture. And he says this about just the American workforce and being busy. He says, there is the assumption, usually unspoken, that there is no distinction between what we do, and who we are. Your resume isn't part of your identity. It is your identity. This leads to performancism. That is a word that he made up. <laughs> performancism, which holds that if you are not doing enough or doing enough well, you are not enough, at least not compared to those around you who are killing it. Sometimes we get in this cycle of putting so much value on what we produce and, and what we make. Um, in an article, Amazon executives joked, work-life balance is for those who hate their work. Thanks. There's a cartoon strip I'm going to put up that was popular. There it is. I'm not a workaholic. I just work to relax. Sure. So it's no wonder that America, every single year, leads the world in untaken vacation days. Every year, we're just crushing it. We're like, nope, not a workaholic, I just do it to relax. And it's this cycle of saying, who am I? And quietly whispering, I am what I do. And if I don't do it right, I'm not enough. And maybe you're thinking, okay, it's a little extreme. Some of these examples of corporate America, my work isn't my identity. And if that's where you're at, great. And I know some of you, especially during this pandemic, are, you're just like, I don't even have a job. I mean, 
we pray for you. And we get that. But when we do get a job and we get into pursuing something, we, it's very easy for us to pursue the American dream. Because deep down, we all want to be enough. We want to be validated. We want to have safety and security. And the American dream tells us, you know, if we get power and if we get promotions and we booster our 401ks, we're going to have a sense of security and control over our lives and over our families. Maybe it's getting enough to buy the new house or the new boat or the most recent iPhone. And if you're like me and can't afford those things, it's you can purchase your hap happiness on Amazon with two-day shipping, and that's fine. But either way, whatever level you're at, somehow, if we're not careful, our happiness simply becomes a, an, a, a, a commodity, there it is, using my words this morning, that you can purchase. And it, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not how God intended work and our purpose. And we can see that because so often we are stressed and burned out. In our work, sometimes we pour everything into it at the expense of our spiritual and mental health, even our physical health, and at our worst, at the expense of our families. But I don't think this is the way it was supposed to be. In fact, I believe that everyone can find beauty, purpose, and enjoyment in their daily work by reclaiming and living into hum humanity's original position description, regardless of your job title. Because in God's creation, it's not what we do, but it's how we do it. And I want to look at how we do it in our purpose by going back to Genesis, to our roots. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be hanging out in Genesis chapter 1. If you just open it up and after the title, you're right there. Okay, so I'm going to give you a moment to do that. Uh, but I think it's going to be helpful for us. If you've ever applied for a job, you get a position description. And on that position description, it's like the role and the title, and then your tasks, and then there's a reporting structure, and all of that stuff. And so we're going to actually walk through that sort of paradigm of what is our position description within creation. And so we'll start out with our role, our title. So in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And there's a couple terms that I just want to focus in on, but notice that it's essentially where these people that are to rule over essentially everything. And the title that God gives us is Image of God. And it's kind of a term that you've probably heard if you've been around the church at all. It was a huge sort of term and buzzword in the late 90s and 2000s for me. And Imago Dei, Image of God, actually replaced the Christian fish as like the number one tattoo in America for Christians. All of my friends like got Imago Dei printed on. But it's so much more than 
a tattoo. It's powerful. It's transformative. And so many of you know this, the names and labels we adopt, they give meaning to our world. And so I want to look at what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, original hearers of this, when they heard this Genesis poem spoken over them, they would have flipped out like, we're the image of God? Because in every temple around them, all the other gods, whenever you walked in to worship these false gods, there would be a statue of these gods to remind you, this is who you're worshiping right now. This is who this temple is for. This is what this God is. And this is brilliant and beautiful. The fact that says that God says, let us make them in our image. So essentially, humanity becomes the statues in all of creation, the representation of who God is. And that is a stinking awesome title, if you ask me. Like, that's at our core. Like, what's your role? Well, you're like a statue, and you represent God in this world. Awesome. I don't feel like that a lot of my days. And so we can find purpose, our initial role, when we reclaim the fact that we are an emblem of God, his holy stamp in this world, to reflect his glory and to show people who he is and what he's all about. In James K. Smith's book, You Are What You Love, he points this out about being created in the image of God. He says, it's both a noun and a verb. It says, as you go, as you live, as you work, you are imaging God to everything to everyone around you. I think that's beautiful. Every morning, I get to step out and say, man, I get to be God's representative. I'm imaging him. And then at the end of the day, when I look back at my life, I'm like, I don't think I did that very good. So what does it look like to mediate the divine, to take this role seriously and to reflect his glory? Well, in every position description, there's different tasks that we have to do. And so when we go to uh, Genesis 1, in verse 28, he gives us our tasks. It says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I want to focus in here on be fruitful and multiply and subdue. I imagine Adam and Eve, when this project was first starting, um, sitting in the HR section of the garden and God saying like, okay, first things first, I need you to be fruitful and multiply. And Adam being like, what does that mean? And then Eve being like, and he's like, okay, got it. I like that part of the job. Keep going, God. What else do we need to do here? This This whole project and role is great. It's fantastic. Essentially what he's saying in verse 28 is, I want you to look at all around you and unfold creation's potential. I want you to subdue it. Subdue it essentially means to harness the raw, uncut potential the earth has and make something beautiful out of it. Our first, our first job description and role in this world, it wasn't it wasn't this magical thing like uh, cloudy with a chance of meatballs where Adam and Eve just thought of their favorite meal and it just started raining amazing food and they're like, this is sweet. No, but they had everything at their disposal. 
It's like a blank canvas for them to produce and cultivate the most delicious food and to share it with each other and those around them, to harvest and make the best tasting wine. All of that was there, and God said, you have all the things. Live into that, make something beautiful, reflect my glory. So we have unfold creation's potential as part of our task. Subdue it. Take all the raw materials and create something beautiful. And then we occupy it. There's this theme throughout. We occupy creation. We are co-creators. God is looking for partners. Essentially, we're kings and, and queens, ruling over all these things that we cultivate and make. This is part of our description from the beginning. And it allows us to say, when we ask the question, who am I? I'm a human created in the image of God, bringing with it all the things I just mentioned. What is my purpose? My purpose is to be God's representative, to reflect God's glory, and to partner with him, cultivating a world that reveals his beauty and his goodness. I want to apply for that. That sounds awesome. Paul even wrote about this when he was writing to the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3.10, he says, In everything you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Everything. Paul intentionally says, when you eat and drink, those are things that we need to just sustain life. And so he's essentially saying, look in everything. When you're sharing a meal, when you're working, when you're out and about, do it to reflect the glory of God. Being made in the image of God and fulfilling these things, it's in our DNA to participate in what is good, what is beautiful, and what is true. And we all have that potential, which is amazing and beautiful and a role that we can all reclaim. To summarize this whole section, I think um, the theological term for this is shalom. Maybe you've heard it. Essentially, it means human flourishing and creation flourishing at its best. I love what Lisa Sharon Harper says about shalom. Shalom is what the kingdom of God smells like. It's what the kingdom of God looks like. It's what Jesus requires of his kingdom citizens. It's when everyone has enough. It's when families are healed. It's when shame is renounced and inner freedom is laid hold of. It's when human dignity bestowed by the image of God in all humanity is cultivated, protected, and served in families, faith communities, and schools, and through public policy. Cultivating shalom is part of our job description as humans and followers of Jesus. Because in God's creation, it's not what you do, but it's how you do it. Regardless of your title or your paycheck, each and every day, you can pursue and participate in cultivating shalom. And when we have this imagination, when I was studying this, I think this is so cool. When we have this imagination about ourselves and about our daily work, we can see why the Hebrew word for work, avodah, is the exact same word in the Old Testament as worship. Because when we claim this reality, our original PD, even when our work or the product we produce doesn't feel like worship, how we do it can worship and bring glory to God and the people all around us. Now, the last portion of our 
job description. There's always a reporting structure, right? Like you get the tasks and you're like, so who's my boss? Do I got a team? Like what's going on? In the original reporting structure, God was the boss, CEO, but he wanted to partner and he wanted to make something beautiful with us. And everything went sideways when humanity said, you know what? I think we'd be better off if we were the boss of our lives of creation. You've shown us some good stuff, God, but we want to be CEO over all of this stuff that we have get, been given. And things got twisted. Sin and evil entered the world. We experience death now. And all of our potential of creating beauty, which we still have, we now can produce things that are terrible. And we see that all around us. We have the potential of making the greatest food and meals and sharing it. But sometimes we hoard that food and people go without, as an example. There's things that we could use for good, but that we see all around us are being used for bad. But God doesn't leave us here. Once you get a job, right? If you work at a good place, you've got training and orientation, right? Our favorite day. Like, I, that's where I learned the songs at Red Robin. I was like, okay, I can do this. So God doesn't leave us there. He wants us to return and to experience and to taste the garden here and now in the present day. He wants that so bad that he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, starts to put all the pieces back together. He puts our broken relationship with God back together. He, he saves us from death. And he actually lives and teaches and shows us what does it actually mean to cultivate creation's potential in his kingdom. And so Jesus becomes the model. And as followers of him, we are his apprentice. And so we watch everything and listen to everything that he teaches, and then we do what he did. That's what an apprentice does. And when we live into that, we can start to see a kingdom vision here and now of a picture of the garden and also a picture of where we're going. In our days, we can pull back and show the, the beauty and goodness of God's kingdom regardless of our job title, because it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And these stories of invitation, of participation, and cultivating something beautiful by following Jesus are scattered not just in Genesis, but through the, the New Testament. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, he says, listen, all of you are a new creation. You are God's ambassadors. It's as if he's pleading to the world on your behalf, reminding us we are God's statues, his emblem here, his ambassadors. Represent him well. Jesus in John 14, 12 says that you are going to do the work that I'm doing, but you're going to do even greater things. Really? And goes on to say, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father, but I'm sending you my spirit to empower each and every one of you to do this mission. And on top of untapping all of the potential that this world has, I'm giving you two more tasks. Make disciples and baptize them in my name. You've seen my kingdom. You know who I am. Now live and go and do what I did. So who am I? I am what I do. I represent God. I made it in his image. And I get to bring shalom and beauty to everyone around me, regardless of my job title. And so when we reclaim this original calling as partners with Jesus, we can actually believe about ourselves that it's not what we do, but it's how we do it. 
and we can start to make what we love when we fall in love with Jesus and show the world a glimpse of who he is each and every day. And then our jobs become a place where this happens. And so you're not just a software engineer writing code on a Tuesday afternoon. Maybe you're the person of a coworker who they found what it meant to fall in love with Jesus because of how you showed up to work and how you cared for them as you wrote code. Because of your humility, because of your grace, because of your mercy, and because of your kindness, you showed up and were imaging God to the people next to you. So you're not just an engineer or coworker. You're the person that gave them a glimpse of on earth as it is in heaven. You're not just a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad. You're bringing shalom into your home, helping your kids fall in love with Jesus and your household to thrive. And trust me, if you were a stay-at-home mom or dad during the pandemic, that is some work. Man, employees were disgruntled all the time. So kudos to everyone who stayed home. You're not just a teacher, right? You are God's emblem in this classroom to all the kids that God has placed in your care for this school year, especially in this unique time. Yes, you teach them things. Yes, you get a paycheck. But what does it look like to reflect the glory and beauty of who God is by the way that you show up and teach your kids in your classroom? And what I love about reclaiming this position description is there's, there's no age limit on it. And there's no specific schooling that you have to do or go to seminary. Like, you can step into it because that's how God created you. You are made in the image of God. You're priests and rulers. And so if you're a student in your middle schools, in high schools, in college campuses, you can be God's representative, his statue, and show what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God outside of your studies and homework and all the things and there's no age limit on it. So if you're the older generation, right, if you're like the Eric Joldersmas or the Torrens or the grandparents, you don't ever get to retire from this job. You don't build up enough shalom and goodness and kingdom moments throughout your days and like, whew, finally get to retire. Whew. No, you actually bring the most wisdom because you've lived a life of reflecting God's glory. And so you don't get to retire from this, and that's a, a beautiful thing. You get to maintain this calling. And if we lean into this, both individually and collectively, as TLC, can you imagine our, the places that we work, live, and play would be these hubs where we show up and reveal who God is as his representatives, his ambassadors, his statues, in all the different pockets of this city. I have a story that I want to end with that I think illustrates this really well. And it's a true story, and it's told by an author named Robert Fulgram. And he um, describes himself as very brilliant, and he is, but growing up, he knew it. And he made sure people knew it. And he was so smart in his college days that he got different grants to travel around and take uh, classes abroad and at different conferences and different campuses. 
Um, and one of the things that he loved to do is at the end of uh, a class, if you've, you know, in the classroom in college, often after you go over the syllabus and different things, the professor will say at the very end, are there any other questions? And so his thing, when he would go to different places, right at the end, he would always raise his hand and be like, yeah, I got a question. What is the meaning of life? And everyone would chuckle. And it was like just his thing that he liked to do. Well, when he was studying abroad, he had a professor named Alexander Papadros. And this dude was super smart, very prestigious. All the professors wanted to be him, and every student that visited wanted to take a class with him. And so Robert, being kind of the spunky kid that he was, explains that I had to do it. Like, this guy's a legend. I have to ask him. So when the time came at the end of the class, Professor Papadro said, hey, are there any other questions? And Robert was excited. He's like, yeah, I got one. <laughs> hey, uh, what's the meaning of life? Everyone kind of chuckled. They're like, dude, I can't believe you just asked him that at the end. Like, I don't know. It's not that funny, kind of rude. So everyone chuckled, got their things, were picking up. And as everyone was getting their stuff, he walked to the front and he just did this, put up his hand. So what's the meaning of life? Well, I can tell you that, sir. Everyone got really quiet. And this brilliant professor reached into his back pocket and he pulled out a mirror. And he said, when I was a young child, we lived in a parts during the World War II where German, Germany just took out our village. Basically, the, there were so many buildings and ruins, we barely had enough money for food, let alone toys. And while I was walking around, I, I found this broken down crash motorcycle and the mirrors from it were, were broken on the ground. And so I picked it up because I thought it was cool. And it became a game to me to go around our village and see what spots I could reflect the reflection of the sun into dark corners and dark areas of these crumbled buildings. And it was just like a game for me. It's like as I got older, high school and college days, I kept this mirror with me. And whenever I was bored, I would just pull it out. And I would see if I was, you know, sitting, having tea or eating, I would find a shadow and I would reflect the light into a dark corner. And then he looked at Robert and he said, as a man now, I realize that this is actually a metaphor for how I'm supposed to live my life. See, I am not, I am not the source of the sun, but I play a piece in it. And when I reflect that light into the dark corners and forgotten places in my life and all around me. I'm fulfilling what it means to live. He said, so Robert, that is the meaning of life. And then the professor found some light and reflected it right on Robert's chest. And he said, from that moment on, it changed his perspective on who he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to live into. And I love that story because I think it illustrates that it's not what we do, it's how we do it. That if you're looking for a job or you're trying to figure out what to do with your life or you're a student or you're stressed and you're just burnt out, like things over the pandemic just made work even harder for you. May you realize that each and every day, you can claim the reality that you are an image bearer, a statue, someone that can cultivate the beauty and goodness 
of God, and you can reflect light into the dark areas in your life and at your workplace, and you can create beauty in a place where maybe it often brings you stress. And so if you're willing, um, I just want to close with uh, saying a few words and blessing over you. And so if you're okay with it, if you would close your eyes and open up your hands, and may you receive these words. Friends, if you desire what you love, then you will make what you love. In all that you do, may you bring glory to God, shalom to others, and participate with God in making something beautiful on earth as it is in heaven each and every day. Amen.